Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see all of you. Would you please open in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy in your New Testament? On Sunday mornings, we're currently in a series in which we're studying through the books of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. These are called the pastoral epistles. They're three letters which were written to two young pastors by the Apostle Paul, Timothy and Titus. And we're in a study through them. You know, here at Whitefields, what we like to do, we like to study through books of the Bible. So we take a book of the Bible and we study through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse so we can get the whole counsel of God's Word. So currently we're in 1 Timothy, and today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So go ahead and open there. All right, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads one more time, because we're going to open God's Word. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we come to your Word, that you'd speak to us by your Spirit, through your living Word. We know it has a message for us today. Give us a sense as we Uh, open up your scriptures, a sense of expectancy, knowing that whenever we open them, Lord, you have a message for us. You want to speak to us. We want to receive it, Lord. We want to uh, put it into practice in our lives, Lord, that we might be transformed during this time. So we pray that this time now as we study your word would be a time of being formed and shaped by your spirit through your word into the people you've called us to be. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a Saturday afternoon. I was with my parents uh, in a little shopping center in Arvada, and uh, we had come there for lunch at a restaurant, which was in this shopping center. At the time, I lived in Hungary, but I had come back to Colorado to attend a friend's wedding. So while I was in town, my parents suggested that we go out to eat at a restaurant, and the restaurant they chose was in this little shopping center, which happened to be just a couple blocks away from the high school where I had gone to high school. And so this shopping center was a place that I had been many, many times during my time in high school. So it surprised me when after lunch, my parents suggested that we go into one of the shops there in the shopping center um, because they told me that there was someone who worked in this shop that they wanted to introduce me to. So they take me into this store. I had seen this store before, but I had never been into the store because it sold hot tubs. And when I was in high school, I wasn't really in the market for a hot tub, right? So uh, we go into the hot tub store and my parents look around. They find the person that they wanted me to meet and they walk over to her. It was a young woman with blonde hair. She was a few years older than me. And my parents said, Nick, we want to introduce you to Tracy. Tracy is your cousin. And I was like, really? Okay. Hi, Tracy. You know, I, I, I have a pretty large family, right? A lot of cousins. But I'll tell you what, it's a pretty strange feeling to meet someone for the first time and then be told that they're your cousin. Especially because as Tracy and I got to talking, we found out that we grew up in the same community. I mean, she worked a few blocks away from my high school in a shopping center that I often frequented. And on top of this, it turned out that her best friend in high school was the older sister of my best friend in middle school. And what that meant is that on several occasions, we had been in the same place at the same time, her with her friend and me with my friend, but we didn't realize that we were related. You see, she's my first cousin. Her father and my father are brothers, 
but her parents got divorced when she was young. She grew up in the same community, but with her mom, and she didn't have a relationship with our side of the family. And so I had actually met her before, but we had regarded each other as strangers when we had met, when in fact we were actually family. Now, we even have the same last name, but of course, you never really bother to ask like your friend, hey, what's your older sister's best friend's last name? So, you know, it's interesting how the way you feel about somebody changes when you realize that they're your family. To me, Tracy was just another stranger previously. When I had seen her, I would have just walked past her and not given it a second thought. But all of a sudden, now the way I felt about her changed a lot. Now I wanted to know everything about her. I wanted to know what her life had been like growing up. I wanted to know about her struggles and her successes, her strengths and her strifes. Why? Because she's my family. You see, before she was just another face in the crowd. Now she's someone whose future mattered to me. And I wanted to cheer her on. I wanted her to succeed. If she needs help with something, I want to be there to help her because she's my family. You see, as soon as I found out that Tracy was part of my family, I began to care about her in a way that I hadn't cared about her previously. And it's interesting, again, the way you feel about someone changes when you find out that they're your family. And you know what? That's true for us as Christians as well. The Bible uses several metaphors to describe who we are as Christians. And each of these metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the Christian community, they all describe different aspects of both our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. You see, for example, the Bible refers to the community of Christians as the body of Christ, right? Christ is our head. We as believers are individual members. We have different roles and functions. Another metaphor the Bible uses, it calls us, as the Christian community, it calls us the bride of Christ. So we're united to Jesus in a relationship of love and faithfulness. Another metaphor, it calls us the temple of God. A temple, right? The, the church, the Christian community, we are a spiritual temple where God's presence resides and where believers are built up as living stones. We're also called the flock of God. We're like sheep. God's our shepherd. Jesus said that he, as God, is the good shepherd who cares for and protects those who follow him. We're also referred to as God's field, right? God is planting seeds in us, watering those seeds, tending us, pruning us with the goal that we would produce fruit to bring him glory and to benefit others. Now, each of these metaphors helps us to understand a different aspect of what it means to be a Christian. They describe different aspects of our relationship with God and different aspects of our relationship with other Christians. But there's one more metaphor the Bible uses to describe who we are as followers of Jesus, and that's the metaphor of a family. See, the family of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in, uh, earlier in this same letter that we're reading right now, Paul the Apostle, writing to his young protege, a young pastor named Timothy, who was serving as the pastor of the church in the city of Ephesus, Paul wrote to him and said this, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to be behave in what he calls the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So by referring to the Christian community as the household of God, what he's telling us is that the church is not just a building that you come to. It's a group of people to which you can belong. And we see this throughout the Bible, that God is building a family. 
To be a Christian means that when you put your faith in Jesus, you become a child of God. You become part of this new family that God is building. It says in John chapter 1, verse 12, the opening part of the Gospel of John, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You remember Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray, our Father who art in heaven, So to be a Christian is to be a child of God. It means to have a relationship with God in which you know him as a father. And what that means is that other believers are your brothers and sisters. So the church, this community of those who've been redeemed by Jesus, who have committed their lives to following him, you know what we are? We're not a a group of natural friends. You know what we are? We're a group of natural strangers. In some cases, natural enemies who have been brought together by Jesus and he has made us family. It's kind of like when I met my cousin Tracy for the first time, right? When I saw her at first, I just considered her to be just another stranger. But when I found out that she was family, it changed the way I felt about her and it changed the way I acted towards her. And the same is true for us as Christians and as followers of Jesus. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, we're going to be looking at how these family ties that we have as Christians, how they work out practically in the church, specifically in regard to how different groups of people in the church relate to one another now that we're family in Christ. So the title of today's message is, He Made Us Family. And what we're going to see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16 is this, that through Jesus, we have been brought into a new family in which we're called to honor, encourage, and care for one another. So one more time, I'll give you that statement, that summary sentence, and then we'll use that sentence as our outline, our guide for walking through the verses in this passage. So through Jesus, we have been brought into a new family in which we're called to honor, encourage and care for one another. First part of that sentence, through Jesus, we've been brought into a new family. First Timothy 5 begins with these words, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. Timothy, as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, you know, he had a really difficult job. He had been called to do something that was really hard. He was called in to take over a church, a church that had been in existence for many years. And and at times it had been a vibrant and healthy church. But what happened is over time, this once vibrant and influential church became riddled with factions and divisions largely because of false teachings that were being promoted by some people in the church. And it was also riddled with unhealthy practices. So here's this once vibrant church that has kind of gotten into some problems. And so Timothy was called in to fix these problems, to set things right, and essentially to save this church. Now, Timothy had been in ministry leadership for many years at this point. Up until uh, this point, he had been traveling around with the Apostle Paul for over 10 years. He had been going with Paul on Paul's missionary journeys when Paul would go from city to city preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, and starting churches. 
Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. He was Paul's protege. And yet, in spite of his many years of experience, Timothy was still a relatively young man. He was probably in his early 30s at this point. And so when Timothy came to Ephesus, he found himself in a position of needing to correct and instruct people who, in most cases, were older than him, right? Older than him. And they, of course, didn't think that they were wrong. and They didn't want to change what they were doing. So here in this letter, Paul has been writing to Timothy to encourage him in his calling and his gifting as a pastor and to instruct Timothy on how to lead this church and how to deal with the difficult situations that he was called to deal with there in Ephesus. Now in this section, or in the section right before where we pick up today in chapter 5, in chapter 4, which we looked at last week, Paul had instructed Timothy to not be shy about teaching true doctrine, to not be shy about correcting those who were teaching false doctrine or doing wrong things. Paul, here's what Paul had said to Timothy in chapter four. Command and teach these things. Right? That's very forceful. Command and teach these things. And don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. But now here in chapter five, as he begins in this first few verses of chapter five, Paul gives Timothy an important kind of counterbalance to what he said in chapter four. Here's what he says. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, treat older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. So as Timothy is to be there in Ephesus doing this work of correcting bad doctrine and unhealthy practices, it's important for him to remember that the people he's working with, who are they? They're not strangers, and they're certainly not his enemies. These people are his family. As family, they share a common identity, a common destiny. They're on the same team, and they're going to spend eternity together. Part of being a family, you know what it means here in the church? It means that when other people offend you, it means that you, or if other people do something wrong, you don't just throw up your hands. You don't say, I'm going to take my ball and go home. No, you know what you do is you work through things. But as Paul's pointing out, it's important that we work through things with love and respect. Now, when Paul says in verse one, do not rebuke an older man, the word translated rebuke is a unique word. It's only used one time in the entire Bible. And it's used right here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. It literally means to strike at someone with your words. That's the implication, to strike at someone. In other words, to attack someone with your words. We might say today to verbally assault someone. Now, it's interesting because there are other places in the Bible where the word rebuke is used, but that word is actually a different word. I'll show you that in a minute. But listen, there, there are other places in the Bible where pastors specifically and actually other believers, just believers in general, are instructed that they should rebuke people who are wrong. So for example, in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tells Titus, another pastor, rebuke with all authority. Uh, even in the same chapter here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, just look down a few verses to verse 19 and 20. Paul instructs Timothy that he should rebuke people, and not just any people, he should rebuke elders who persist in sinning. But here's what's interesting. That the word that's translated rebuke in chapter 5, verse 20, and the word that's translated rebuke in Titus chapter 2 is a different word 
than the word that's used here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. In other words, sometimes it is appropriate and right to rebuke someone who's doing something wrong. But that rebuke must never take the form of a verbal assault, as an attack with words. And that's especially true when it comes to speaking to someone who is older than you. You know, the Bible, for example, in the law of Moses, God instructed his people to treat older people with respect because of their age. Here's what it says in Leviticus chapter 19. It says, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. So instead of a harsh rebuke, Paul encourages Timothy that when it comes to correcting older men in the church, which is part of his job as a pastor, he needs to do it with a posture of encouraging them as one would a father. The encouragement, what's the encouragement he's supposed to give? Well, the encouragement is to encourage them to see what the scriptures say and to encourage them to do what the scriptures say. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, look at what Paul writes to Timothy about the role of the scriptures in the life of a believer and in the life of a church. He says, All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So in other words, the way to reprove and correct someone, especially someone older than you, is open up the scriptures, show them, kindly and with humility, what the Word of God says about what they're doing, and then encourage them to do what the Word of God says. On the other hand, keep this in mind. One of the marks of wisdom, according to the Bible, is that you are able to receive correction. The Bible says, literally, that someone who hates correction hates himself. That It even uses the word stupid in some cases. But a person who receives instruction is on the way of life. So listen, to be a disciple of Jesus, you know, the word disciple means student. You're a learner. You're someone who's on a journey of learning and growing. And so we have to resist the tendency of our hearts to become stubborn or hard-hearted. We, we cannot allow ourselves to become unteachable. And we need to resist the, the, uh, the tendency to, to develop hard hearts that are not open to correction when it is valid and based on the Word of God. Now, when it came to younger men, Timothy was instructed to treat them as brothers. What does that mean? It means don't talk down to them. Don't be condescending. Treat them as equals in the Lord. Uh, treat them as brothers. With older women, treat them as mothers with kindness and respect. And he says, and with younger women, treat them as sisters with all purity. I think that phrase, that added clause, if you will, with all purity is really important. As a pastor, as a spiritual leader, it was important for Timothy to be above reproach in all areas, but specifically in regard to his interactions with women in the church. He should never come even close to crossing a line of impropriety or crossing a line in which a woman would be made to feel unsafe or uncomfortable. The church needs to be a place where young women can feel safe and where they can have healthy, plutonic relationships with men. For men, think about this. To regard a woman as a sister, think about how brothers regard their sisters. They don't look at their sisters in lustful ways. They don't flirt with their sisters. They're not provocative in what they say to their sisters. But rather, a good brother, what does he do? He looks out for and protects his sister. 
right? Sees if other people are treating her badly, he's going to deal with it. If she needs help with practical things, moving, assistance, support, whatever it may be, brothers are going to be there. They're going to be somebody you can call on and count on when the sister needs help. Now, of course, listen, if two single people want to get to know each other and, and get married, praise the Lord, that's good. We encourage that. But the baseline relationship between men and women in the church is we're family, and we treat each other as brothers and sisters. Now, what it means to be a Christian, in other words, is that through Jesus, we have been brought into a new family. The church is not a club or a support group, right? It's not an affinity-based group for people who are interested in the Bible. No, no, the church is something much more profound, much more special than that. The church is a body, and it is a family. And in this family, you know what that means? We have family ties, through Jesus, we have a new identity. Rather than being strangers or acquaintances, we now relate to one another as fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. And what that means is that we not only treat each other with respect, but we treat each other understanding that we have a responsibility towards one another. So what does that look like? Well, let's carry on in our sentence and in our text. Here's the next part of our sentence, right? Through Jesus, we've been brought into a new family in which... We're called to honor. Look at what he says in verse three. Honor widows who are truly widows. Now, in the days of the New Testament, when the New Testament was written, there was no system of social assistance from the government, right? There was no, no like social programs, uh, welfare programs, or, you know, retirement programs, things like that. And because of that, there were several groups in society who were especially vulnerable, but perhaps the most significant vulnerable group, as we see throughout the Bible, was elderly widows. Many times these widows, uh, they had no way to provide for themselves, which is why if you read in the book of Acts, like in Acts chapter 6, for example, you'll notice that one of the very first ministries, one of the earliest ministries that Christians performed was a ministry of feeding widows because if the church didn't feed them, they weren't going to be able to eat. You see, Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean there are people walking around pretending to be widows, right? Like lying about being widows, saying their husband died, but they were wrong, right? No, 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 that's not, that's not it. See, listen, when Paul talks about widows here in, in this section, he's not just talking about widows in the technical sense, right? The technical sense being someone whose husband has passed away. He's talking about widows really as a class of people who had no support. So for example, Paul's going to say later in this section, as you'll see, he says, listen, if there's a woman whose husband has died, but she has grown children who can support her financially and otherwise, then yes, she's a widow technically, but she's not truly a widow, right? She's a widow in the technical sense, but she's not destitute. That's what Paul's talking about here. She has people she can turn to for help, but there are people who don't have that. There are some widows who are really in, in a dangerous situation. You see, here in this section from verses 3 through 16, Paul is going to give Timothy some instructions, which, which are actually very practical for us today. And it regards how to take care of those who come to the church asking for or requiring financial support or material assistance. 
Now, as the church is a family, this is an important topic because being part of a family is caring for those in your family, right? Caring for those among us who have need. So when Paul says that Timothy should honor widows who are truly widows, that doesn't mean, you know, say, all the widows stand up and we're all going to clap for you. No, no, no. When he talks about honoring, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about giving them money. He's talking about giving them financial support. Now, we know this through the context, but specifically, we also know it because if you look down to verse 17, Paul's going to talk about honoring people who work in the church, and the way that they are honored is by being paid a salary. So here, Paul is talking about honoring people, and what he means is paying them money, putting them on the church's payroll, now, this is always a tricky situation. I've been in church leadership for, you know, almost 20 years now. Actually, yeah, I guess it is over 20 years now that I've been in different forms of church leadership. And I'll tell you this, every church I've ever been a part of has abundant, there are people in the community, people in the church, there's an abundance of needs and there's always a limit of resources. There's always limited resources. And so the church needs a lot of wisdom with who to help and how to help them because we're called to use our limited resources to do many things, including spreading the gospel, making disciples. And so how to do this is always very tricky and difficult. So here Paul is going to give Timothy some guidelines to follow in regard to how the church should assist those who are in material need. Now, I love the, the fact that Paul describes this financial assistance as being a way of honoring these people. It wasn't to be done in a way that was demeaning or in a way that was humiliating, but rather it was an expression of honor towards these people, and in this case, towards these widows. It reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, where he says, love one another with brotherly love and seek to outdo one another in showing honor. Just imagine what a church would be like. Just imagine what your family or your workplace would be like if you followed that ethic, if you were always trying to outdo one another, as if it's some kind of competition, right? To outdo one another in showing honor to others. <clears throat> That's the kind of community that God desires us to create as his children in his household, in this new family of God that we're a part of. So that brings us to the next part of our sentence. In addition to honoring each other, we're also called to encourage one another. Look at verse four. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So Timothy, as a pastor, was to encourage people to do what was pleasing in God's sight. In this case, it was taking care of their family members. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews tells us the reason why it's important for us as Christians to gather together and not neglect gathering together, as was the habit of some back then and even today. He says, here's why. You need to not neglect gathering together because you need to gather together for the purpose of encouraging one another. Now, what are we to encourage each other to do? Well, he tells us that too. There in verse 23, he says, we're to encourage each other, first of all, to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. So that's the one thing. We're to encourage each other in our faith to hold fast to Jesus and the confession of our hope without wavering. 
Additionally, we're to encourage each other in regard to God's faithfulness. That's what he says there, right? He says, he who promised is faithful. So we're to encourage each other in regard to God's faithfulness in the midst of whatever somebody might be going through at the moment to remind them God is faithful and to encourage them to trust in the Lord. And then he says in verse 24, and we are to encourage each other in this way, in a way that stirs each other up to love and good works. The idea they're stirring each other up, right? Stirring the pot. Another translation of this says spurring each other on. Think about how a cowboy uses spurs, right? To poke a horse and get them moving. That's what we're to do in each other's lives. So for widows who had no family to take care of them, Paul then goes on to say this. Verse five, she who is truly a widow left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. So the church was to encourage widows to live godly lives and to set their hope on God. If someone, in this case, even a destitute widow, was living in a sinful pattern of behavior, the church was to address that. They were to confront them about it because sin always leads to destruction. It leads to destruction in your life, in your relationship, and ultimately it leads to the destruction of your soul. And that's why Paul says, if someone lives in a self-indulgent or sinful way, they are dead even while they're alive. The fact is, listen, God loves you and he wants what is best for you. That's the reason why God says, be holy as I am holy. It's the reason why he gives instructions about what to do and what not to do. It's not because he's bored and has nothing better to do. It's not because he hates it when people are having fun. No, it's because he's wise and he loves you and he wants what is best for you. And so encouraging one another in the family of God, it means both encouraging one another to trust God and do the right things. And it also means encouraging each other not to believe lies and not to do sinful or destructive things. Because we care about each other as family, we want each other to experience life and joy, not destruction and sorrow. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence. Through Jesus, we've been brought into a new family in which we're called to honor and courage and finally care for one another. Look at verse eight. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, those are very strong words, aren't they? Remember who they're directed at. They're directed at people who are trying to get the church to take care of their relatives rather than taking responsibility for the relatives themselves. In some cases, we, we see here, people were even trying to get handouts from the church instead of working to provide for their own families. And Paul's saying that kind of behavior is actually sinful because you're failing to live up to and fulfill the calling that God has placed on your life, the responsibilities he's given you to take care of. There's some really good guidelines, by the way, about this whole topic that are found in Galatians chapter 6. Let me just show you real quick. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul tells the Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But then just a few verses later, in verse 5, he says, each person has to bear his own load. Now, what is that? Those almost seem like contradictory statements. One, he says, bear each other's burdens. The other one says, but everybody has to carry their own load. Well, how does that work? It's not a contradiction. Rather, 
It's two different types of burden that are being talked about. The burden in verse 2 is a crushing burden, the kind of weight under which someone is unable to stand up or carry it on their own. But the load in verse 5 speaks of the normal responsibilities of life, kind of your lot in life that God has given you to carry. So in other words, when someone is experiencing an extraordinary event, a crushing burden, we are to honor the Lord by loving that person and coming alongside them to help them carry that and bear up under it. But when it comes to normal responsibilities of life, God wants each person to carry their own load and not to expect others to do it for them. To carry your own load, right? That to do so will make you stronger in the end. It's the load that God has given you of responsibility to carry. He doesn't want you to pass that off on others. Finally, in this section, it says this. It says there in Galatians chapter 6, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, the idea is that as the family of God, it's important that we care for one another. Now, Paul goes on next to give guidelines for those who would be put on the payroll of the church. He says, verse 9, Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Because the church had limited resources, there had to be some criteria for who was eligible to be on the church's payroll. There was an age limit, assuming that younger women would be potentially able to work and provide for themselves. Women who had been married more than once would likely have had more family connections to be able to potentially turn to for help. When it talks about bringing up children, Remember, that, that's an interesting thing, right? Because the people we're talking about here are people who don't have children to take care of them. So what does it mean that they brought up children? Well, most scholars who read this, what they believe is that this is a reference to the fact that the early Christians were famous for rescuing babies who had been abandoned and cast out. It was a very common practice in those days that if a woman had an unwanted pregnancy, for example, or if a baby was born with a disability, or if a baby was born and it was a girl, but the parents had wanted a boy, what they would do in those days, they just had a different regard for life. They, they didn't regard it as being valuable. And so they would abandon that child on the town trash heap or in the forest. They called it exposing the child. And the child would die from exposure to the elements or, of course, from animals. But Christians, because of their biblical beliefs that all people are created in the image of God, and therefore all people, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of ability or disability, all people have innate value they would go and they would rescue these babies from the trash heap and raise them up. And this is likely a reference to that, that these women would have been involved in the church's care for orphans. The point here is this. There were standards for leaders in the church and there were standards for anyone who would be on the payroll of the church, even as a widow. He now goes on with some restrictions. Look at verse 11. Refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. 
Beyond that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So Paul's encouragement here is that younger women, younger women not be put, or younger widows not be put on the payroll of the church, but that they be encouraged to work, to raise families. And the reason is because idleness is dangerous for our souls. And for many of us, I think this is true for me and for many of you, right? The best way to keep yourself from getting involved in bad things is to keep yourself busy doing good things. That's the idea here. And Paul concludes this section in verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The message of the gospel is that God loved you so much that even when you were a stranger to him, even when you were an enemy to him, Jesus gave his life for you in order to make you not an enemy, but to make you a friend and beyond a friend to make you his family. Jesus Christ was God come to us. He became one of us. He lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death in order to pay the penalty for your sins. Through his death, Jesus provided a way for you to be forgiven of your sins, to be made right with God. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin and death forever. And to all those who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, which means that when this life is over, if your trust is in him, then you will receive eternal life with your heavenly father in the place that he's prepared for you. And the way to receive that gift, that new identity, that eternal hope, is by believing in Jesus. To believe in Jesus doesn't just mean to believe that he was a real person. It doesn't just mean to believe that the stories the Bible says about him are true. To believe in Jesus in this sense is something more than that. It means to, to not just believe in him as a person, but to put your trust in him to put your trust in him and what he did to save you. To believe in Jesus means to cling to him as your savior and to follow him as your Lord. And as you do that, not only does God give you this gift of being his child, but as his child, you become part of this big new family that he's building. And as part of this family, you know what else? It means that you get invited into, called into the family business the family business, God's work in the world that he calls us to join him in. The good news of the gospel is that in the person of Jesus, God came to us to meet our greatest need, our need for forgiveness, redemption, and salvation. And because of what he did for us, through Jesus, we have been brought into a new family in which we're called to honor, encourage, and care for one another. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.